Welcome to episode two of Vegan Reflections, where two vegans, one guest, and I, Jordi Kazamijana, talk about articles I have written the month before in veganfda.com. The guest of episode two of Vegan Reflections is the writer, activist, and academic Alex Lockwood. Alex is a senior lecturer at, in creative and professional writing at the University of Sutherland. Uh, he has a master's in creative and critical writing from Sussex University and a PhD in creative writing from Newcastle University. He has uh, written both fiction and non-fiction books and has won several awards. One of his books is The Peak in the, uh, Thin Air, and the fiction one is a novel, The Chernobyl Privileges. His main subjects of interest include plant-based food policy, veganism, activist praxis, environmental and animal protection, and narrative framing. And he has been an activist for several groups, such as Direct Action Everywhere, Animal Rebellion, etc. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Alex Lockwood, for being the second uh, guest of this new series uh, that I just started a month ago. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yes, thank you. Uh, quite cold, though, hence the hat. <laughs> yes. Warmer. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. It is actually quite cold. And this is the second episode. I'm still experimenting a little bit with it. So I, I learned from the first one. I changed the position of the camera and I was a bit higher. I moved the microphone a bit higher until I got it right. Uh, but so far, so good. The first episode was good. Uh, and the idea of this uh, series is uh, I give to each of the uh, guess the choice of two from all the articles, blogs I've written the month before, and uh, and I gave you five to choose for, uh, and uh, you chosen two. Uh, which ones have you chosen? I've chosen the articles, um, the interview with Lucas Spiegel, who was a vegan who travelled the world, and I have also chosen the sexual politics of fake meat. Yeah. Uh, okay, Lee. Let's talk about the uh, Lucas Spiegel article called a title, Lucas Spiegel, the vegan traveler who has circumnavigated the world. Alex has chosen the article titled Lucas Spiegel, the vegan traveler who has circumnavigated the world. I'm just going to read the introduction. Jordi Casamijana, the author of the book Ethical Vegan, interviews fellow author Lucas Spiegel, who spent two years circumnavigating the world as a vegan traveler. I have travelled quite a bit. Although I don't travel much anymore, I have been privileged enough to have travelled to many countries for both pleasure, rarely, and worked, mostly. But as a Catalan immigrant who tried several countries before settling in the UK about 30 years ago, I have also travelled to live. I was vegan when I visited many of the countries I have been to, so I have a pretty good idea of the type of challenges vegan travellers can face and how they can be overcome. Some are purely logistical, while others are cultural or even psychological. In the same way as spectators of films and theatre are expected to temporarily suspend their disbelief and enjoy the story, one may think that vegan travellers could temporarily suspend their philosophy to have a, a very good time abroad. But it does not work like that. The philosophy of veganism is not abstract, temporary and distant, but palpable, permanent, and present. So one cannot simply disconnect. It, uh, it does, this would disconnect us and 
as living beings and deflate us into stupor. For ethical vegans like me, veganism is not something we do, but something we are. By holding the philosophy of veganism as the guide of our choices, we have incorporated it into our essence. We have been transformed by it. And if, if we are really ethical vegans and not just experimenting with veganism, we cannot go back, not even temporarily. The vegan philosophy manifests itself in so many aspects of one's lives that without it, we no longer have a life we can run, let alone one we can travel with. As when traveling, we must be extra alert, active, make new choices and go to unfamiliar places. In many respects, the lack of familiarity with the new situations and scenarios enhances our vegan radar and sharpens our ethical judgment, or at least it should do. It has been precisely when I travel that I felt the most vegan I could feel, not only because of the situation of eventually choosing the vegan option when they were not immediately apparent to me, but also for witnessing cases of animal cruelty and abuse from which I could no longer shelter myself. Therefore, it does not surprise me that when other vegans travel long distances through many countries and cultures, they would have so explicit vegan experiences that they would write books about them. Imagine, then, how much could you write if you're an ethical vegan who traveled for 697 days, sleeping in 152 different beds, being transported by 25 airplanes, six ferries, and countless, countless buses, trains, taxis, cars, rickshaws, motorbikes, and bicycles, crossing two oceans and a handful of seas, and passing through 20 different countries. And imagine if you did all that in a single trip that circumnavigated the world, starting from Vancouver, going west, and ending in Vancouver, arriving from the east. Not through a travel agency uh, visiting tourist attractions, but by volunteering along the way in animal sanctuaries to be able to afford your trip. There is a vegan who has done that while helping many animals along the way, and his name is Lucas Spiegel. I read his amazing book titled The Weight of Empathy, a Travel Memoir, which not only is very ins inspiring, but it's full of beautiful photographs. And I caught up with him while he was in Vietnam on another trip, although this one, not that long, so he could give me the inside story of an experienced vegan traveler. Let's go back to the conversation. Uh, he written a book called The Weight of the Empathy, a Travel Memoir, which I find very interesting, many interesting photos of that. And he's been a vegan for a long time. He's been traveling around the world. Uh, and there are many things that obviously he's been discovering through this traveling, and it's become a philosophical travel as well. Uh, uh, what's your general impression of, of, the, of his uh, uh, of the article? And uh, I don't know if you actually read the book, but uh, you will have a very good idea about what this book is about. From from having uh, seen my article, yeah, uh, I mean the reason I a uh, reason I chose this article is because um, I think that I, I liked the uh, the elements of Lucas's story um, that are very thoughtful uh, and take their time over the uh, reflection upon what things mean. 
um, and the experiences of sort of like the engagement with other people, other cultures, other animals. Um, and it really spoke to me for the kind of um, life that we've sort of lost in some ways through like the pandemic. You know, we lost a lot of sort of the sense of the ability to travel and what travel gives us. And I think for some people that really was quite powerful in terms of, um, uh, you know, reminding us what travel is for um, and the experiencing of other cultures is for. And that isn't just to sort of, you know, take a snap of it for Instagram um, and say that we've been there. It's actually to learn and to and to think and to expand ourselves. And I therefore really enjoyed the aspect of a vegan traveller uh, who is expanding their understanding of their own compassion and veganism uh, and relationship to other beings across the planet. Um, it was really interesting to hear, you know, that Lucas was talking about the reason he put the book together, or one of the reasons he put the book together, was the opportunity to take his time to reflect upon and process and synthesize two years of intense experiences and to figure out what it meant. And I really enjoyed that. I really, uh, that makes me think that the book is and always will be very good um, as a something for other people to engage with because of the uh, process that went through making it. Because actually that's what I think for me travel is for, you know, like, and for a lot of people, it's about um, the expansion of who we are by learning from others and the fact that he's gone on essentially what is a vegan worldwide tour working on animal sanctuaries is that he's he's given himself the opportunity and us through his work through his book to think about the expansion of the elements of um, a compassionate kind ethical veganism so what it means to work on a sanctuary what it means to form bonds and relationships with other beings whether human or non or animal or non-human um, and also really insights into the sanctuary uh, uh, experience. Um, I think one of the what something he says, something he, that you, you he says in the article that you, where where you asked him a question, and so you quote him in the article, it is one of the best explanations that you can find about um, the the pros and cons of the thing called effective altruism, which is the which is the form of like thinking about sort of where do you best put your energy, time and money, anything you can spend in terms of efficiency, which I find often quite bloodless. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, and what he says is that sanctuaries are actually a very inefficient way to help animals in terms of like the costs, but they're, but they're, they're also the only example, the only real living examples we have of how to treat, animals particularly farmed animals in the way that we claim they should be treated and i thought that was really powerful so there was some there were some great elements of the article and it's it's why i sort of pulled it out because i think it's um even for those who think oh we're not going traveling this year or we're not um or we haven't got a big trip planned or i could never spend two years traveling the world just distilling down the essence of what travel can be for even if you're going away for a week or two weeks or three weeks, it was, was really good. It really came out of the interview with him. Yeah, I agree. And there were interesting things that I, I found in the, in the book. Uh, one of the, When I travel, often I one of, one of my conclusions of traveling has been that often the things that I think are going to be the same tend to be different, and the things that are gonna, I thought were going to be the, different tend to be the same. It's always the like expectation is 
completely false. And discovering reality is always the opposite of what I thought it would be. Uh, even the smaller, the smaller things. And one of the things he planned initially, he was saying, well, I'm going to go through the Buddhist countries because that's going to be easier for me to get vegan food. But then he discovered that Myanmar and Cambodia, the, interpret the, the interpretation of, vegan, of, of Buddhism is quite different. Of course, there are several schools, Mahayana, Tarlat, and all this. And, and they eat a lot of meat. So he, he didn't expect that. But the, also, the, also in, the, the place that he visited that I was more curious about is this place called uh, Palitana, which is this city in India that is supposed to be uh, uh, a vegetarian city because they ban meat. And he's we've seen articles around the city in India, they ban meat. Well, that's the one he went. And he was obviously disappointed to see that it was very much like any other city, uh, dogs in the street. Uh, of course, they still use cows because they are, although they are, the, the, the people out there are mainly Jains. The Jains are still vegetarian, not vegan. And he was kind of disappointed, not as was expecting to find a vegan paradise, and he didn't find it. So uh, have you uh, encountered this? So, so when you're traveling around as a vegan and you have these expectations, have you encountered these surprises, either good things that you didn't expect or, or bad things that you didn't expect? Yeah, I mean, I, I was very lucky to um, travel a lot through uh, my different jobs. Like, um, I worked for a charity, and I, I spent a lot of time in like maybe thirty or forty different countries. And I think I was vegetarian for the majority of that, rather than vegan. But certainly, as an academic, you know, traveling, I've done a lot of conferences um, around the world, uh, and I've had the opportunity to go to these places and like attend conferences, present papers, and and, and generally as a vegan and engage with other vegans. Um, I've always been really, uh, yeah, I think one of the things you always find the same, uh, actually, is the disappointment of vegans when you get there, you know, like you get to, a, yeah, as an academic, you get to a conference, you're all together, and then there's always things that you, that, you know, we, we and sadly, for vegans, you know, we don't live in a vegan world. Um, even even as vegans, we're not perfect. We know that because there, there can be no perfection because, you know, and, and that's a bad thing to aim for anyway. Uh, because no matter what we try to do, there there will be vegan product, there will be animal products and used in things invisibly or things which you can't escape from. So I think one of the things that's always really interested me is that you can find uh, connections with vegan communities all around the world. And that's really nice. And and I think the other thing I found that was that has been really sort of um good is the is the willingness and and very often the 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 uh, prep it's already set up that there are vegans sharing food and there are vegans sharing their experiences and there are vegans you know working to sort of uh, uh bring you in even if you're there for a week or two or visiting um to the activism and the practices so it's a very there are when we talk about a vegan community the thing i found is actually there are lots and lots of vegan communities and it and many people in those individual localized vegan communities do see it as a global vegan community. So when I was doing my book tour in, in America, for example, uh, people in Portland who I'd never met before did a huge amount of work to set up a book event for me. You know, and when I landed, we were invited for dinner, etc. Um, and actually something that we'll refer to sort of later in the in the second article that we're going to talk about is um the other like the other thing that you find. Uh, I think is actually really quite good across all the world is the quality of the fake meats, <laughs> particularly in sort of Chinese and Buddhist communities, you know, around the world. So that's always been good. Um, the th I think in terms of the things I've been disappointed with, um, um, 
I'm not sure I can think of that many. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I think generally if I'm traveling, uh, the, the thing or the person I get most disappointed in is myself hmm. in terms of, um, you know, uh, very often not making the most of the experiences because of all of those expectations you bring with you. You know, and actually one of the things I really enjoyed about Lucas's piece uh, was he said, you know, he, he he purposely didn't plan much, which was good. So he went with what was unfolding and opening before him. Um, and uh, that's a really, really important lesson for not only travel, but for life. So actually, you know, I'm not, not, not wanting to be not wanting to be too, too hard on myself or avoid the question. But actually, when I when I've traveled, the majority of what I have found when I've traveled has been always really quite exciting. Um, and yeah, I think I'll leave that there. What about, because he talks about the challenge, the biggest challenge, he says, is not the food. The biggest challenge is seeing other animals in use in a way that you're no longer used to see them because in our cultures, animal agriculture is hidden from public view. Everything is done out of the view, everything. And in other cultures, when you travel, they're not that hidden. And you see the dead bodies hanging around, you see people killing animals in the middle of the street and it's more normal. And of course, as a vegan, you have to deal with it. And I think that that's, uh, it, it reminds me one time I was traveling through uh, the world trying to help an anti-bullfighting organizations to get together and to fight, uh, to create an international anti-bullfighting community. And I was trying to galvanize support and I was going to Spain and I thought, I'm going to go to the expats, the British expats, they're sure they're going to be anti-bullfighting. I was talking to them and they were not keen to help because they were saying, well, we guess we just arrived. We don't want to rock the boat. There might be a situation where you're conflicting while you're traveling. You, you see bad things, but you don't want to say things. You don't want to react as you would normally react uh, if you saw the same thing at home. Uh, but it's probably the most difficult thing to negotiate, how to find that balance. Have you encountered this? Have you seen bad things in other places that you would react if you have seen them in, in your home? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very valid point. It's a, it's a very sort of um, clear uh, and uh, relevant point because I think in the UK, we probably have one of the most hidden away, invisible um, systems of domination over animals than anywhere in the world. Um, very much, we still live in a Victorian era very much in the UK. And it was in the Victorian era where slaughterhouses and the mistreatment and abuse of animals was properly hidden away. Um, and we've kept that sensibility in the UK and, and exported it through colonialism around the world to a lot of places as well. Uh, so even when you visit other sort of, you know, Western rich, you know, um, countries like Australia or uh, America or Canada, um, even there, uh, perhaps because of the culture, um, you see more um, uh, abuse and exploitation of animals than you do in the UK very often. So, and when and it's interesting. So when we do see it in the UK, it does it does revile us. We do notice it much more. And then when you go do so, I was in Mexico uh, quite recently in 2018, 2019, and I joined a uh, the uh, um, uh, Cancun animal save there doing vigils outside chicken slaughterhouses and pig slaughterhouses and everything was much more open there absolutely and you saw the, the pigs on the trucks um, you saw the chickens and the slaughterhouses much more much more openly much more visual uh, and then 
and, and that was quite hard to see. It was quite hard to see. And it was really interesting to spend time there and you see more detail. So I remember the pigs being on, in the UK, when, when pigs are transported in trucks, they're, the trucks are very modern and air-conditioned, but the pigs are very much hidden away. Whereas when they're transported in Mexico, they're just bare open trucks. So you see the pigs. And then uh, these particular pigs on this particular truck had been left outside the slaughterhouse for quite a while in the sun. And they were they were literally roasting in the sun and really suffering. And one of the workers was spraying them with water to try to keep them cool. Um, and I'm not saying that that person was being kind to pigs, but there is there was more consideration of the experience of the pigs. It was less hidden behind rules and health and safety. Uh, and I don't and, and that's obviously not a good thing. They're still being exploited. But the 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 openness around the ways in which um, animals are treated in other countries. Um, it, in a way, makes me th there's there's we have to deal with different situations. In the UK, we've got a particular situation for the way that animals are dominated and abused, and we have to work with that situation. And then when we see them in other countries and they're treated in different ways, they're still dominated, they're still abused, but they are treated in different ways. It's mm. it's you know it's it's more visual, it's more it's more exposed, whatever it might be. Then activists in those countries have to deal with it in different ways. Um, and uh, it, th that cultural clash between the sensibilities and the visual visuality and the um, the ways in which animals are present or not um, doesn't lead to harder or easier questions to answer. They're just a different set of mm. questions to answer in terms of how we deal with it. But obviously, if you're traveling from one country to another, it, it will very often, it, it does shock people. Um, if they're paying attention to it and if they want to pay attention to it and, and in a way that's obviously no bad thing because any even it doesn't matter where you are in the world animals are being used exploited dominated and actually having that be opened to you which is why i liked his experience as a vegan traveler you know he was using the opportunity to really reflect and expand upon what it meant to be in an equal just fair relationship with other animals um uh, and in a, in the in the way that, for example, the Save Movement considers it a duty that everyone should try to bear witness at some point to the suffering and exploitation of animals. Um, when you travel, you know, you, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity to see things that we don't normally see. Um, but it can be it can be a shock for people, and it depends, you know, on their on their willingness to face it and and move closer to it. How that they then will reflect upon and bring that experience back to their you know everyday life yeah indeed i agree and another thing that i like from his view of, of his conclusions from his traveling because he's been i think more than 10 uh vegan centuries working there spending some time there is the kind of the positive side of it you might be going overseas and see these horrible things but also you see these centuries that were amazing and that you would not be able to see if you probably stayed at home uh, and and this idea that these centuries vegan centuries uh, animal centuries are for vegans really than, than for animals because animals yeah you can keep a few there just a tiny few it's very expensive it's not a very cost effective to help animals in general comparing the numbers but it's a very good thing for vegans that go there and live in a world that is kind of a mini vegan world, this world that we want to build. 
And, and what he's done by traveling from vegan world to vegan world is just to have an insight of how it would look like in the future world that we try to build. That means it makes it more real, more palpable, because it's not theoretical anymore. He's seen it in mm. a smaller version. You, you can be vegan yourself and surrounded of non-vegan. That's very detached to that vegan world. But you have a, a vegan family. You have a vegan household that's closer to that vegan world. Where everything is vegan in that household. But if you have a community like a sanctuary, is even more. So that made me think, well, the vegan world is already there. It's just not grown up yet. It's just been seeds germinating all over the planet, but it's already there. We're, we're building it. So how, how, what are your thoughts about, about that idea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can you, you could you could go further with the thoughts, um, the thought experiment, couldn't you, in terms of if it's little seeds of the vegan world that we want planted all around the world, how do you then grow those seeds into forests? You know, how do they grow up into sort of connected, uh, a set of connected worlds that then proliferate and 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 become the become the full world? And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because actually, if you think, okay, they, you know, we talk about sanctuaries being you know not cost effective in terms of the kinds of money that people could donate or give in terms of yeah energy or time or money to animal causes. And yet they are the only experience, the only evidence, the only examples of the kind of world that we do want. So actually, perhaps they become the and, and other people have worked on this, you know, like people like Will Kimlicker and Charlotte Blattner and uh, and many, many others who I could probably I, I'm, I'm sure I've forgotten all of their names, but they've done a lot of academic work about this in terms of sanctuaries being at the heart of the animal movement, because they are exactly the kind of world that we are trying to create. And actually, some of them are really experimenting in that way. So, I know, you know, for example, m many of us know, um, oh, what's the name of the sanctuary in Vermont? It's the, um, in Vermont in America, it's run by Patrice Jones and colleagues, and they co-create uh, Vine Sanctuary, that's it, Vine oh, Sanctuary. Right. And theirs is a, an LGBT, queer, um, non-binary, uh, animal-centred, co-created space. So it is a proper, you know, it's a proper experimentation with how you create space between uh, between and across species. You know, so the emus and the sheep and the goats and the cows have as much say as the humans in how that sanctuary is developed and run. You know, and so other people, so like Will Kimlicker and others, have taken this work and explored it academically and theoretically to see how that can be modelled and expanded. So for me, absolutely. I mean, I, I was really lucky to spend time on Farm Sanctuary um, in uh, New York State, which was one of the original um, farmed animal sanctuaries, which is an animal and advocacy centre. Uh, and I remember Susie Coston, who was their longtime um, director of sort of animal operations there. You know, she gave her all of the care. She knew every single animal on that sanctuary by name. Many of them she'd raised and looked after herself. And, and I remember her saying to me, she said, we can save one billionth of the animals through sanctuaries. What we need to do is get people to stop eating them. Mm. And yet animal sanctuaries could be the beacon that does most of the work because they are such profound spaces. And those relationships with the animals are the ones that can be most profound in terms of transforming people to bring about the world that she was talking about. So how do we how do we do that? Maybe every organization in the world, every animal organization in the world should stop what they're doing and create sanctuaries and drive all of their social media and all of the visuals around creating sanctuaries and see how that works. 
it might be it might be more effective than what we're doing right now mm. do you know what i mean so who knows so i completely yeah i completely see that i think uh, the experience that lucas has had on his tour going to different sanctuaries and seeing how they work um is a wonderful experience and i think that there is definitely a lesson in there for more of us to do uh to, to commit ourselves to have more of those experiences that we can then perhaps translate and and uh uh, communicate through the activism we're already doing. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think it's a good point to stop these uh, article reflections and move to the next one. Sure. Uh, the sexual politics of fake meat, which is, of course, very much based in Carl J. Adams' 1990 book called The Sexual Politics, uh, politics of Meat, uh, a Feminist Vegetarian Critical Theory. Alex has chosen the article, The Sexual Politics of Fate Meat. I'm just going to read the introduction. Jordi Casamigiana, the author of the book Ethical Vegan, looks at Carlos J. Adams' book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, to see how it applies to fake meats. I feel shame when I think about it. When in the 1990s I was working and living at the Monkey Sanctuary in Lou, Cornwall, where the communal meals were vegetarian or vegan, and no meat could be cooked in the house, I was still a meat-eater. On my day off, if I went to Plymouth, the nearest city, I could go and eat my favorite fast-food meal, fried chicken cooked in a style of a southwestern U.S. state. I completely fell for the perverted witchcraft of the company's PR wizards. Cunningly burying parts of a sentient being's bodies, bones and all, in a greasy blanket of deep-fried wheat, flour and spices, customers would no longer think they are eating animal flesh, but they would think they are eating an exotic savoury pasty of some sort instead. And some half-digested salt fri salted fries, potatoes and some carbonated foamy liquid sugar, and you get such an addict addictive combo that people would buy it in buckets, literally. I fell for it, like many others. But when I became vegan a couple of years after leaving the sanctuary, I put an end to such shameful, unhealthy addiction. Well, it took me about 10 years of veganism to adopt a wholemeal plant-based diet, so although I changed food sources, I continued to eat unhealthy food for a while. But I stopped my direct willing contribution to animal agriculture right then when I became an ethical vegan in January uh, 2002. So my shameful behavior stopped then, although the feeling of shame returns when I think how long it took me to make that change. However, uh, has that really stopped? Did my shameful behavior stop completely when I became vegan? It depends on what other unethical activities I may still be participating in, which becoming vegan did not entirely eliminate. Perhaps I did not pay enough attention and I might have engaged in racist behavior, even when I consider myself anti-racist. Perhaps I was too relaxed and I might have contributed to the destruction of the environment more than I should have, considering I see myself as an environmentalist too. Perhaps I was not careful enough and I might have played along with sexist situations when I should have challenged them, as I think I am a feminist-friendly person. On the latter, it would be good if 
I checked what renowned vegan feminists say because they are likely to see things that I might have missed. And who better to do that than with the American writer, feminist, animal rights advocate, independent scholar, and intersectional vegan, Carol J. Adams. In 1990, she published a very influential book titled The Sexual Politics of Meat, a Feminist Vegetarian Critical Theory. So when I started exploring the social justice dimension of veganism, after I had already explored the animals, environment, and health dimensions, but before I explored the spiritual dimension, the last one of the five dimensions I think vegetarian veganism has, I I, I decided I had to read it. I could see why Adam's book was so influential, as she focused on the links between the oppression of women and that of non-human animals, and on the real men-eat-meat carnies paradigm. Considering that, according to any poll anywhere, most vegans are women, I am not surprised her revelations stuck a chord with the entire vegan movement. In the preface, uh, we can read, this book details three uh, details these interrelationships and examines the connections between male dominance and meat eating. It argues that to talk about eliminating meat is to talk about displacing one aspect of male control and demonstrates the ways in which uh, animals' oppression and women's oppressions are linked together. I do not doubt that her work led many women to become vegan even if at the time they would call themselves vegetarian as uh, that was more socially acceptable in in the previous century. And it remains very relevant today as the problems she identifies still are widespread. Her book made much sense to me and confirmed that the intersectional approach, which I now prefer to call it the overlapping approach, was the progressive modern evolved way to look at veganism. The book also reassured me that my perception of myself being feminist-friendly, I am not sure if I could uh, ever qualify as a full feminist, as I am a cisgender male boomer, and some may argue this characterization may constitute an insurmountable barrier, was still valid. A few months ago, though, I did something that made me revisit this. I did something that made me feel shame again. I ate some food that reminded me of that fried chicken I loved so much, and I stopped eating about 20 years ago. And it reminded me of it because it was designed to remind me of it. It was a plant-based version of that fried chicken, which to me tasted exactly like the one that made me feel so shameful. The meat in it was fake meat, but the feeling of shame, the memory of it, was not fake. I thought I had to revisit Carol J. Adams' book and with it as a guy, see if I could discover the sexual politics of fake meat. That is a subject I think needs to be addressed and there has never been a time in history with more fake meats, much more accomplished in their imitation, hanging around. So let's go back to the conversation. Well, the first, uh, the, the, the first thing I want to mention about this is the fact that is, uh, her book uh, was written in the 1990s, and that was a long time ago. 
where people were not even using the word vegan that commonly as we use it today, and where the word vegetarian was used often instead. Uh, and so she she says uh, the sexual politics of meat is actually uh, is a feminist vegetarian critical theory in the title, but in the book actually she says is a, 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 a feminist vegan critical theory. And she uses concepts that are very important, like the concept of meat, saying that the meat is more than just the flesh. The meat is actually a social has a social meaning, social meaning that means it is food, that means it is the best food. That is the food uh, consumed by the superior being, but the demographic is superior in a patriarchal society that will be males. So it's the food of the males. So that this fallacy that the good food means protein, that means meat, this is something that I don't agree that is the case, but it's something that the concept of meat proposes. That uh, is, is protein, is good meat, is good for, for the superior, for the good one. Uh, so what, what are your views about her interpretation of? The concept of meat as a uh, as a social meaning, as a symbol, a social symbol. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our society, the way we interact as humans, the way we make meaning, the way we tell stories, and where the way we narrate our lives and uh, what's meaningful to us is done through symbols. It's done through um, metaphor. It's done through symbolic uh, weight in the uh, in the ideas that we have. You know, everything really is a symbol. You talk about family; it's it's a metaphor for a set of relationships. Um, you talk about sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, how we uh, even, you know, how we think. You know, people think about sort of like the way our brains work, and they relate them to programs and computers and software and hardware. You know, the that's how we make sense of the world to ourselves. And what we eat, obviously, um, you know, we we make sense of what we eat in terms of good, bad. Uh, acceptable, not acceptable, uh, tasty, nutritious, all of these things. And they are the stories that we tell each other. And some of them gain real sort of powerful structures around them that aren't just about the substance, but are about, as you said, the uh, meaning that they also give, the social meaning. So this food denotes power, denotes status, this food doesn't. And uh, one of the really interesting places with that, obviously relating to um, Carol uh, Adams's book, is around gender. Uh, and obviously, you know, so, and there's been some brilliant work done around this in terms of the, the, the gender of particular foods, as you said, you know, like, so meat is considered to have a social meaning where it's for the men, where it's patriarchal, where it bestows power, where it bestows authority. Um, and other foods, don't <laughs> you know so you know which is why real men don't eat quiche for example is a slogan from like the 80s or whatever and obviously that goes back thousands of years it's really interesting you know thinking about fake meats which is what the article sort of like discusses is that the buddhists and the chinese were making fake meats thousands of years ago but they were doing it because they wanted something that was powerful and substantial mm. and meaningful at the center of their meals when they when they traded with or received, you know, delegations from other countries, you know, and so it, it bestowed, it, it, it came to represent sort of power and riches and wealth and, you know, an authority and all of those things. So, yeah, so I completely agree with the idea that the food is not just food. You know, it's loaded with meaning and connotation and sort of symbolism and power. Um but where I do have, a, I think, a difference, not maybe a, a difference of opinion or something that's really interesting, actually, that you provoked in me from this article 
was that I'm not quite sure yet whether that whether the meaning of meat is the same as the meaning of fake meat. And I think that's a really interesting thing to sort of provoke and think about. Because um, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it before reading your article. And therefore, I'm like, oh, no, that's something that's, even if I disagree with what you're saying in that article, it's a really interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I mean, it is based in, in, in applying this logic of uh, first mm. understanding what Carol means with meat, then understanding the concept of carnism that I in, that, that I use, and, and then the, the, the issue of absent referent, which is a very important concept uh, that she uses. But before I go into that, carnism, I have used this word often, is obviously created by Dr. Melody Joy uh, in many years ago, and uh, and not everybody likes it. Uh, people sometimes think that refers only to vegetarianism. I see it as the the opposite of veganism. I, 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 although carnism, the word comes from meat, I think because it's a symbolic use of the word meat, not a literal use of the word meat, it means animal products or the, or the food of the powerful in the same meaning that Carol uses. And therefore, for me, carnism makes sense, expanded beyond meat, because I interpret it uh, this meat as a very symbolic term, and carnism also very symbolic group of the opposite of veganism. But do you use this term? Do you are you one of those that don't like it or or don't use it or, or how how are you with this word carnism? Yeah, I I mean I know the term. Obviously, I've read uh, Melanie Joy's book, uh, many of her books, uh, and I'm engaged with the ideas of carnism as an ideology, as a set of beliefs around why we, as she says in her book, sort of like you know, love some animals, wear other animals, and eat other animals. Um, for me. Um, I don't use it often um, and I certainly don't use it within sort of like practical application of messaging or activism because it is, uh, it is a conversational or theoretical or philosophical concept, I think, that actually is useful if you're engaging in those contexts, in those kinds of conversations. And sadly, we don't have that many conversations <laughs> at that level very often in our in our day to day lives. Um, but I also do think as well that um, it has there's there's not as much there's it does it's not useful actually when you're having a conversation with someone who may be steeped in the ideology of carnism to pull away the curtain and show them that they're a carnist, for example. You know, so in in terms of like the, the way that messages land with the people who you are trying to have a conversation with and perhaps help them see that there are alternative ways of living that don't exploit uh, or dominate animals, um, that's where I think actually it probably doesn't work. But I sort of, I, I, underst I completely understand and agree with Melanie Joy uh, and all of the other social, social psychologists and um, uh, social scientists and geographers and human politics, you know, human geographers who have worked with the idea that um, we are governed by sets of beliefs. And some people call them narratives, some people call them stories, some people call them, call them ideologies um, that shape the way that we behave. Um, and it is really, and, and Carol Adams does as well, you know, she talks about it in terms of sort of, um, you know, um, patriarchy, patriarchy being an ideology. Um, and, and it has a name and it, it's really stuck and it's useful uh, to explore. But And so when we are engaging with the way to dismantle these ideologies, 
giving them a name can be useful, but only in certain contexts. Yeah, I agree. And also, I, I, I like to use the concept of carnism much more than the, the, the adjective carnist. Mm. To, to talk to a person, you are carnist, that sounds more aggressive. In the line of you just said, as uh, carnism as a concept of an ideology, whether it's hidden or not, doesn't matter. Mm. But the ideology is useful in the same way the patriarchy is. Mm. Uh, but using it on that concept, the uh, Carl uses this very, I think, very useful idea of absent referent, which would be something that carnism has done to meet to me, basically creating this concept where there is something missing. People don't have, there's an absent part of it, which is the animal. You don't see the individual animal anymore and you don't see the killing. You see meat and you have disconnected yourself from that individual animal and from that killing. And that's what she calls the absent referent. And what, and that's where my fake meat, uh, fake meat connection comes because I think then the, the role of the vegan in, or the ethical vegetarian of the, of the 80s is to break that, to basically expose the truth, to show the reference that is absent, to tell people this is an individual that you're eating. This was being killed, not just milked, it was also killed. It's a constant effort to uh, eliminate that hidden, that erased concept uh, or reference that carnism has made from it. And I think when fake mix still does that, because if we're going to say, don't eat this because this is an individual, and the reply is, no, it's not. It looks like the same, uh, but it, this one doesn't come from an individual. It makes it more difficult for the vegan and the campaigner to, to point the finger to the meat and saying, remember, this is an individual, because now you don't know. You don't know anymore. It's so close. And I'm not talking about the veggie burger that is obviously distinctive. Uh, from the meat bird. I'm talking about these meats that are indistinguishable, that are made to look and smell and, and taste exactly the same. So to the point that nobody can tell by looking at them whether there is an individual or not involved, whether there was somebody killed or not involved. And that is the problem I found, or the, or the issue I think, that carnism, so, so fame meats are playing with carnism, not with vegans in that game, in that narrative, are making more easily to hide the reference, the hidden reference, the absent reference. So, and that's my reflection. So what, what's your view about this? Yeah, so first of all, I thought it was a really interesting, provocative view. It one, it's one I hadn't really spent much time thinking about, but there had been like ideas floating around um, in the in the ether, in my head, around sort of, you know, what what's the, you know, do we, do we, as vegans and as activists, do we support um, cellular agriculture? Do we support the development of plant-based meats to replicate meats? Um, and uh, and there's an awful lot of uh, you know really good thinking and questions to ask around that. And so the point that you raise that it actually complicates, dilutes, makes it more difficult for the work that vegans and vegetarians and activists have been doing for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years in terms of revealing what was abs what has been absented from the from the um uh production of our you know the dom the dominating exploitative production of animals into food is a really interesting question to ask um and i think that the merit of it is in the um the merit of it is in raising uh questions about complicity about allowing the bigger system of oppression 
the biggest, the bigger neoliberal capitalist patriarchal system of oppression to continue on its way. And are fake meats a another way in which capitalism always devours its opposition? You know, capitalism will turn anything into something that could be sold if it saves and protects capitalism. So feminism, you know, uh, you know, fake meats, you know, they're all they're all sort of, they all become products, and that's how capitalism survives itself. And I think that's a really interesting question. So I know, for example, there's a there's a great thinker, there's a great theorist who was at Edge Hill University in the UK. She's now gone back to Australia, called Paula Akari, who's done a lot of work around the representation of meat uh, to meat eaters, actually, as well. And a lot of the stuff that and and I know one of the the, the one of the positions that she's come to in for vegans and for activists is to talk try to bring all of these um, these issues together under the, the bigger meta-narrative, the bigger meta-story of it all needs to be anti-oppression. And so actually in the formulation that you've given there of saying, look, these fake meats are really just doing the same job that meat is doing because they carry the same social symbolism, the same social meaning, within that anti-oppression umbrella framework, there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. And I think we need to therefore stop and think about whether the fake meats are doing that job. They certainly are for the companies, as you talk about, like the, you know, the, the McDonald's and the Burger Kings and the fast food joints. That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, because they're protecting their bottom line. But where I, where, where I think then we have to, but where I would challenge it and come further and complicate it and, and really want to think further about this is that it does still matter what the symbol formation is being built upon in terms of what's absent. And what isn't absent in plant-based meats is an animal, you know. So there is something where the, the symbol formation of meat is different than if it's coming from, a, coming from an animal. Because we already have things like, you know, we talk about the meat of a coconut, hmm. for example, you know, in a way that, and that would never be, considered i don't think um in the uh in the toolbox or the armory of the patriarchal social symbolism of animal-based meats so there's something there for me that didn't quite that i don't quite believe mm. in terms of sort of the point that you're arguing um but that isn't to say that we shouldn't be revisiting you know what the question is for me the the fake meats that are made out that are plant based are attempting to do a job that's maybe maybe one of the best ways to do it. It's a, it's a tactical job to get meat eaters to stop eating so much animal based meat. That's what it's trying to do. And then, but maybe strategically or philosophically or spiritually, it's not changing the society in the way that we would want the society to change. In the way that, as we spoke about earlier. Um, sanctuaries are you know mm. sanctuaries are not only reforming our practices but they're reforming the symbols on which our practices are performed and fake meats are not reforming the the the, the philosophies or the or the ideas or the symbols upon which our practices are performed so there's perhaps a that difference between tactics and strategy or practice and spirituality or um, practicality and 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 idealism that is is it a tension in this point? I think that you're raising, but it's a good point to raise. No, I I agree because obviously the word 
mean has different meanings, has a literal meaning and has the figurative meaning, the cultural meaning, the, the social meaning. And of course, one is not more important. Well, I'm not saying we should ignore all the real meanings and just concentrate on the symbols. No, I'm obviously not. So if there is uh, the option to only have fame meets uh, and substitute all real animalistic meats with fame meats, I would go for it if that was a, a genuine thing to do, because that's an improvement in the the, in, in the concept of meat as a real thing, a flesh thing. But I would say if we just stay there and if we have a world where we have all the options, we have the food that doesn't come from animals, the food that looks like meat that is not meat, but only looks a little bit like meat, the food that really, really looks like meat and then the, the animalistic meat. I think these last two are together. They are no longer in our sight. In our sight, we have the, the, the bad, or the poor fake meats, the, the ones that don't try to fool anyone. They just try to give you an alternative, uh, all the plant-based meat. But when you cross the line and you just say, let's make it identical. Let's do it. Let's invest a lot of time, energy, and money to make it so undistinguishable that we are no longer be able to tell the difference. Well, if you if you are in that situation, we are already crossing a dangerous line that you're already starting to talk about with the narrative of the other side. If you use this shapes, the forms, the words, the symbols and everything that the other side uses. And of course, I do get the idea that fame meats are designed often with the thought of the meat eater to eating them. But I'm still not quite sure whether that will work as a tactic, whether the meat people will say, we don't care about whether the animal is animals that they're not. We only care about the taste and the color and I, I, that's a very easy thing for people to say that they only care about the taste of the color. I'm not sure that that's true. I think that many meat eaters really want to know that there's an animal involved because they, the concept of carnies had told them, and that's what Adam uh, 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 Adam says, that it means good food. So means an animal is protein means good food. You remove the animal and you just imitate the shape and the form. That's no longer be, going to be the good food. So they think they many carnies do, uh, or people in me do believe that animals are essential for them. And if you remove the animal component of the food, uh, they're going to be less healthy. They're going to be less powerful. So all the things that are linked to the concept of power of the meat is the animal connection, not just the shape and the color. So I think we might be a bit naive in thinking, well, let's reproduce the shape and the color. They will convert. I think it will be more difficult because they will still say, no, I want, I don't care about the shape and the color. I only wish, we want to be sure that there's an animal involved. And that, that I think is, is the difficult thing that we haven't uh, got yet is this understanding of the psychology of why meat eaters still want to eat meat when you give them an alternative that is yeah. perfectly the same, what they still want to do. And, and if they, and, and, and I think it doesn't help what we just, Try to reproduce the 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 meats exactly in the same way. Well, that, that's my point. But just just to finish on this, the symbols I think are important. And I think we we often have this dilemma: should we just go to the basis of the concept or just the symbols? And I think you as a writer know the importance of narratives and how the world can change with narratives and the stories, which are basically symbols one after the other, developed in such a way that makes sense for an audience to listen to. And I think that the, my point in the article is, if uh, Carol make a good point to say, 
look at feminism and look at animals and look the narrative is the same. Look, the concept of meat in power is the same. I was trying to do the same thing like, okay, that was a surprise. You didn't expect to find a connection between feminism, women and misogyny and all this with meat. But also might be a surprise to connect that with famids and what they mean. And so we should pay attention to the symbols and never forget the real thing. The real thing is more important than the symbol, but the symbol is also important. So just to make the message, so if we want to get the vegan world, we need to sell the symbol of veganism better than the symbol of meat. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, if we, you know, if a couple of things, what, um, I, you know, ideally what we are trying to do is change the the meanings um, and the symbols of the meanings so that we can live in a much more just and equal and fair and less dominant and less oppressive world. Um, and you're right to make that point that um, the, you know, the, the, the animal, uh, the flesh of an animal or the production secretions of an animal are related to the idea, the symbol of, you know, they are symbolic of good food. And if that, if that animal is removed, then the goodness is also removed. Um, so there are real, real big intractable, not intractable, but there are really big, difficult, complex problems and issues with how we, uh, from within the system that we currently live, how we unpick those and we, we, we rewrite or we rewire uh, the ways that symbols gain their meaning. Um, but I think so, that, but there's a couple of, couple of points. One being that if we, if we take that view that we need to be anti-oppressive in all of our work, as in we need to, I think you write about it in the article, rather than intersectional, it's overlapping. We need to remove or fight against all oppressions because all oppressions reinforce the other systems of oppression and if we do that i think it's a i think it's a very good question um if we have if we were to get to a point where all of the uh, meat symbolic meat products were plant-based and animal-based what would that mean for the other areas where we oppress people? So what would it mean for the oppression of women? Or what would it mean for the oppression of black people? You know, if we removed that oppression, would it weaken those? I think that's a useful question to ask to say whether or not it's a good thing to do. Um, but I, and I also think in terms of human psychology, you know, there's so much great work being done on this by like brilliant people. Like a, a lot of them are, at Kent University in the UK are doing great work around psychology of like meat eating um uh the question there um, and it's why things like veganuary are so powerful is that it's more likely and i think the evidence shows this is that you change behave if you change your behavior it changes the story that you tell about yourself about who you are and what you do therefore it changes the symbols that you're attached to and it's more it's easier then to change the behavior first which leads to a change in uh, identity and story rather than change the story and identity which leads to the behavior so if i think the, the 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 what what fake meats have got going for them is that they support a behavior change that can lead to an identity change um and therefore that for me is something that we still need to explore further 
uh, while asking all of these other really interesting questions that you start, you know, you've you, that you've brought up in your article about, well, what would that mean for feminism? What would it mean for the oppression of black people, for example, if um, if we continue on this route to uh, prioritize and and support and bulk up and shore up the uh, symbolism of what meat you know, means to people? I think we got to a good position where we got a very good idea about the two articles we're about and reflected upon them and just moved further from them into interesting things to think about. So thanks very much for uh, coming and, and sharing all your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Jordi. Yeah, and good luck with this endeavor. It's um, it's really exciting. So good luck and see you soon. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Bye.